Welcome. We are gathered here today for 30 to 45 minutes of food chat about the moments that surround mealtimes. But today isn't all refried beans and braised meats, no. This episode of Set Meals is dedicated to a real one. A great one. Someone who was taken too soon. It's important that this episode, episode 3, season 2, is dedicated to the very thing that, in its essence, is what this podcast is all about. One that, in some way, shape or form, was a catalyst for Set Meals' conception in the first place. It's not me, by the way. I'm still very much still here. No, Christ, no. It's not Taylor. He is still here. Hi. Not Taylor. Fucking hell, that'd be miserable. No, this episode is for Spud you like. The Jacket Potato restaurant chain fell into administration on Monday. Taken too soon. Gone but never forgotten. Yeah, put that clip in again to break it up. Basically, I've just went to a place called Spud you like. And they do jack potatoes with um, tuna and sweet corn. Now, obviously, the tuna and sweet corn has got a little bit of fat in because they don't use, like, the... The lightest, lightest meal they use, mate. Welcome to Set Meals, a weekly chat show about the moments that surround mealtimes. I'm Samuel Ashton. And I'm Taylor Fawcett. And aside from our newfound yearnings for a jacket potato with mature cheddar and a dollop of sour cream... Or our shared love for a BYOB chicken sheesh with extra chilli sauce, we don't know that much about food, but we do enjoy it. Think of this podcast, Set Meals, less as a food podcast per se, but more of a chat show led by the insatiable hunger of its hosts. We are fully into season two. We've sampled London's best burger. Allegedly. Oh, that was so good. And you've taken me for a meal that could only be described as, as fine in Tottenham's branch of Ikea. And this week, we're talking to a man that has caused both Sam and I to wonder what the hell have we been doing with our lives? Yes, this week we're focusing on El Pastor, a family of Mexican taquerias dotted around London. El Pastor was brought to our attention a few years ago after launching their first location, El Pastor, on Stony Street in Borough Market. I've since worked with the restaurant on various projects, and it's somewhere that continues to maintain my interest and admiration, not only because of its punchy menu, Pacifico and excellent atmosphere, though that does help, but because of the passion the team behind the taquerias have for the project. We sat down with Crispin Somerville, creative director of El Pastor. Well, you did. I did. You were knee-deep in an edit suite in some media company in East London. Yeah, it was miserable. But I did listen to the raw audio intently. All 90 minutes of it, tales of Bowie, Colombian cartels, and you absolutely tearing through plates of tacos. Everything was fucking great. We talked everything from stumbling into a career in TV and idolising Alan Partridge, to opening a nightclub in Mexico City and partying with Kiefer Sutherland. He is the coolest man I have ever sort of met. Uh, Crispin, not Kiefer Sutherland. All right, that's the intro done. Let's get into the show. Season two, episode three. I wore a long sleeve shirt in the studio. Have not learned my lesson. It's not as warm in here though. It's fucking the weather is taking warmer. a downward still turn. Stuffy. The summer has ended. We have got an interview today, so it is going to be a shorter news section. But it's worth noting some sad news that we've already sort of raised. Yeah. And I can't, I can't help feel partly responsible. Nobody had actually mentioned this place for. A good 10 years. I agree. Until we spoke about it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Oh, it's so fucking... Oh, the trailblazers! Mm. And now it's died. Sped your light, closed, gone. Honestly, I didn't even realise it was still around. Yeah, I, but but we did, as you mentioned, we did mention it. We mm. brought them, we raised them from the ashes before they were then lowered into the ashes. It was just, it was funny how we mentioned it on the Thursday and they were dead by the Sunday. Weird. How... 
What I don't understand is surely everyone that listened to that episode of the podcast went straight to their local spudger like and, and bought one. Uh, yeah, closed all 37 branches around the UK. Gone. Very a- sad. A- allegedly, uh, the workers didn't know until an email got sent around and they just didn't have a job. That's brutal. It is fucking brutal. It was brought to our attention by at Buzzing Bugs on Twitter. God bless you. Uh, who sent us a, a beautiful article oh. that had like the original um, artwork and stuff on hey, it. That it might not amazing. have been original. It might have been like made last week. No one spread you like. Yeah, uh, actually my favourite thing that I found out during this whole debacle, which actually I will happily swap for the closure of another great British business, is finding out that uh, Spudgy like actually also trades as fat jackets. <laughs> In the article, it said an attempted restructuring of the spudgy-like business, which also <laughs> trades as fat jackets, last month ended in failure. <laughs> Whoever wrote that must have been absolutely so pissing themselves. <laughs> so funny. Oh, God. Spudgy-like. Gone but never forgotten for a bit. I will have a jacket potato this week. I will have a fat jacket this week in its honour. I'm quite. It's quite sad, but that is literally the only bit of food news you've got. Yeah, well, my thing with this week's guest is that he deserves every second we can possibly allocate to him because every second that we speak is a second not spent on hearing his amazing life story. Yeah, we we we've we've agreed pre-pod that we've we've cut the news section short, very short, and uh, we're basically just going to delve straight in because, um, as you've put it, well, let's let's also note this: you weren't available for the interview this week. No, that's right, because you were very busy. Yes, which is fine. So I went along to the interview on my own. You listened to all of the raw audio after the interview. Yes, twice. And to say that you enjoyed it, I think, was an understatement because you kept on messaging me like a little, like a little boy at Christmas. There was this guy who used to drink in my parents' pub called Dartford Dave, and he always used to, every single time he came in, he used to tell us that he went to school and played cricket with Mick Jagger in Dartford, and then he used to tell all these other tales that were really obviously a lie. Crispin sounds like him, but everything he's saying is true. For me, it's just like this totally summed up everything that I wanted the guest thing of this show to be. In that we, in that food is the jumping off point, mm-hmm. but you just get to speak to people that have such interesting lives. Like people always say that like chefs are a bit crazy, mm-hmm. which is definitely true with the chefs that I've met. But I think everyone that wants to do hospitality or wants to do food, they are a special breed. And then you meet or half digitally meet somebody like Crispin. <laughs> and it just proves that like those people are just made of something else yeah in, in the best way yeah 100 percent. There's, there's definitely also this that kind of um sentiment is why i wanted to speak to crispin anyway because i've met crispin a few times uh and i know as we mentioned in the intro i've, I've known the guys from el pastor now for a year or so done some work with them and they're all lovely they're, they're great and the restaurant's great and the food's brilliant uh but they all like absolutely live and breathe it and i fucking it's it's quite addictive to be around it's quite like guess you quite energized to be around so whenever i've shot stuff with them i kind of a i just hang out and just eat tacos after shoot and and drink beers and margaritas and stuff which is great i mean i'm sure it's not relaxed i'm sure they're fucking really busy and it's hectic but it just feels they they completely embody the atmosphere and the vibe mm-hmm. that they're trying to portray and they're like content right uh, so 100% so that was kind of in part why why we wanted to talk to Crispin because I I thought it'd be good. I'd heard murmurings of his sort of other life in Mexico with Sam, one of the other co-owners, um, a while ago, and I always thought that's, that sounds tasty. 
it's the sort of thing where you're like, oh, that'd probably be quite interesting. Yeah. And then you actually hear the whole story and you're like, <laughs> this guy's so cool. It's funny. I don't even know really how to explain it, but as soon as you sort of realize that people who are successful, there isn't a, a, a template. There's not like one stencil and there's not like a way of doing things because people are fu- also like people who are really successful often are just like a bit fucking wild. Well, I was going to say, if there was... If- if Crispin was working from a template, it's a pretty weird template he was <laughs> working from. <laughs> honestly. Because honestly, every time he adds another thing, I'm like, that has to be a lie. <laughs> and then it's not a lie. <laughs> so he opened the, basically the conversation opens. We're talking about like, somehow we're talking about how he was interviewing David Bowie. In Iceland. In Iceland. At three in the morning. By the way, did you know the special yeah, <laughs> broadcaster's <laughs> loop? <laughs> you know, I used to be a TV presenter. Did you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I was the the thinking man's Alan Partridge. (laughs) And the only cool thing that happened, well, I mean, some of it was quite cool, but this is is actually genuinely quite cool. You're not recording, are you? You're not recording. I am. Are you? Oh, God. (laughs) So I used to do their their big live show. on MTV when it was MTV Europe. So that was something stupid, like a hundred million households, an episode. And it was, it was Davina McCall, Lisa Ianson, who I'm not sure you remember, um, and me. And I would, it was a live show and it was really good fun. Um, and one day coming out of the show, they went, oh, you're getting on a plane to Reykjavik and it's midsummer night, the sun, the sun isn't gonna go down. And you're gonna interview Bowie, but look, you, he's, he's the most trippy scenario ever. And have you been to Iceland? No. It is, it, it is so trippy is and weird. weird. And they've got a really, well, they, I mean, the people I met had an amazing, like, they were united by having very dry senses of humour and absolutely hedonistic, decadent behaviour patterns. And anyway, so they, they, they go, you've got 10 minutes. Uh, Bowie's with his press person, you've got 10 minutes. Uh, and they're very strict about it. And it was at about three in the morning. So it was at his after show in the middle of the countryside. With, it was a really odd scene. And so, and I, I knew how to play the game because you've got to ask about the re- latest release. And well, it's all about promoting that album. So I did all that, and then just at the end, I went, now you've been famously, uh, uh, it's on record that your period of musical production that you least like was around Let's Dance. And he goes, yeah, that's right, can't stand listening to it. Now when my first pubic hairs started sprouting, that's what I was dancing to. And he went, I'm still waiting for mine. And then, uh, uh, and, the press, uh, and the press person went, right, okay, that's okay, it. Okay. And he went, and he went, no, 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 hang on a sec. I'm actually beginning to enjoy myself now. Um, and so I got this 45 minute interview where he just, you know, it got, it became really profound because he just actually, I got to ask one of, you know they say never meet your heroes. But, he, he was like, he, he is a hero and he really didn't disappoint. And, and he just kept on going and it became a really 
quite profound interview. I, I mean, certainly from what he was saying, not the questions I was asking, <laughs> yeah. which was still quite trite and asinine. And um, then, uh, and then, the adrenaline from it. He was like, "Yeah, come and hang out." So, so we then sort of hung out till seven in the morning, and he was he was the coolest, hottest human being I've ever met. But after that. Um, I befriended Iceland's only armed bank robber. Um, uh, and therein lies a tale in itself. But um, I was very full of adrenaline and didn't really have much of a siesta for the next two or three days. And that meant that I turned back up at MTV Studios, which are around the corner from here, kind of 48 hours later. And when I came in, the receptionist Rachel goes. She was she was a scouse. <laughs> hey, uh, the boss wants to see you. That's a very bad scouse accent. Get upstairs now. So I go upstairs, and and he was this total dude, Brett Hansen, I think is yeah, Brett Hansen, hippie. He was like, yeah, we're just looking at the expenses that you've put through and. Uh, I'm amazed to say that you have now displaced so-and-so as the, the biggest single two days of expenditure on an MTV credit card. What were you doing? And I go, well, pretty much tells the tale for itself, doesn't it? He goes, yeah, now this is a disciplinable offense. I go, yep. He's like, but Bowie's team have been in touch. And they like the interview so much, they've bought all the rights to it, and he's going to use it as his main piece of press kit for this whole campaign. And this is, this is the first time it's happened to us as well. So I'm going to set the two off against each other, <laughs> and you're fine. Amazing. It was brilliant. You paint such yeah. a picture of everything he's talking about that it's just fucking addictive to listen to. He also uh, completely out-podcasted everybody when he checked himself and the thing that he said, and then he said, oh, you can put that at the front of the edit. Like, you know, you know, when most podcasts, like, they have that conversation, like, oh, have we started? And they put that at the front of the edit. He, like, went even more meta and was, like, told us to put it at the front of the edit. <laughs> oh, yeah, and then you can edit it to put that bit at the top. So that's all we're going to do. I immediately was like, right, this, because I knew that I could see the time code on the file, so I knew it was, like, a 90-minute thing, and I was like, 70 minutes of this aren't going to be anything to do with food, and that's fine. It's a torrid and colourful career path. Um that uh, started at uni in Manchester uh, in the early 90s till 95. Um, at a really, really hectic and really good. And I, the two reasons I went to Manchester was one, because I was obsessed with Latin America and uh, they had a Latin American studies course where you, and it was the only one in the country where you could choose which country you spent a year in and I had a master plan um, and two because I was obsessed with house music um, and uh, I was able to achieve my two dreams one which was uh, putting on acid house parties in Manchester um, in lots of different venues in particular the Hacienda um, and a couple of others 
and uh, we used to, a friend of mine and myself used to do these events called Pollen. Uh, um, and it was, it was completely amazing, fell in love with Manchester, um, but also was able to achieve my master plan, which was to choose where to spend the third year studying in Latin America. The place that I was, that I had always, having spent lots of time in Latin America at that point, I'd a bit grown up in Brazil and I'd traveled around a lot. And every time I'd got, like when I left school, I worked at odd bins to make the money to go to Latin. It was all about South America. And uh, the place that I hadn't got to, um, by 1994 was Colombia and I, I wanted to study in Cali, Colombia and was definitely one of the earlier adopters of foreign exchange studentry from I was definitely the first from Manchester but I think there are a couple from Liverpool who might have got there before me but I went to the, the Universidad del Valle in Cali, Colombia in 1994. Exactly. Just nobody else. It was, it was wild. Yeah, um, it was wild because in Cali there were, the, there, it was a momentous year in Cali and Colombian politics. Uh, Escobar died the next year in 95, so it was at the very height of Cali versus Medellin. There were no, there wasn't much, um, uh, foreign presence. There, there really weren't many foreigners there. I remember getting stopped uh, by um, some Colombians who were brandishing some quite metallic looking weapons saying in Spanish, what are you, CIA or DEA, what are you? Because there just, there wasn't a tourism industry to speak of. And um, I got to travel a lot around Colombia um, and actually Pertinently, my career in um, hospitality began there. Um, so I, I turned up a couple of weeks late. I was, um, there wasn't so much of a foreign exchange faculty, but I was directed to some office. But my first thing was, I've got to find somewhere to live. And my pockets were not bursting at seams, uh, even with the kind of 20,000 pesos to the pound exchange rate that existed then. Um, and I was looking for somewhere to live and I couldn't really, I, it took me about a week of very unsuccessful looking until one day I walked into a bar at about 6 p.m. and uh, ordered a beer. And at that, spoke, uh, at that point I spoke Portuguese but not Spanish, so I was sort of, from Brazil and I, 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 I was sort of trying to muddle my way through a conversation. Um, but it turned out that the uh, big guy behind the bar was the owner of the restaurant. Um, and I drank a few more beers and then at about nine, you know, after us chatting, he said, oh, why don't you come and join me and my family? And it was, it was him, his wife and his three daughters. Um, and uh, the aguardiente, which is the national drink, which is like really sugary anise, vile substance comes out and we start drinking that and uh, it soon is 
one in the morning and he's going, we've got a brilliant idea. We've had a little chat and we understand your plight of having not found somewhere to live, but we all live upstairs and we've got a spare room. So why don't you uh, come and be a waiter here at lunchtime? So it was like a, it was only open at lunch. It was like an office workers sort of calf place. Why don't you come and work here? And uh, we'll offset your rent against you working here. We need a, we need a, a waiter and um, it'll be fun. And so I moved into the room upstairs. And How big was the place? Uh, the restaurant was about 70 covers. Um, and the room was uh, about as big as that power cupboard up there. <laughs> um, but I then had this extraordinary introduction to yeah. Colombia, which as yeah, and also um, I was a terrible waiter, um, couldn't speak Spanish, and compounded by the fact that I wasn't very talented at it and didn't understand what they were saying. But also, the restaurant started doing really well. Uh, well not it was doing quite well before that, but basically with people who wanted to come and take the piss out of the idiotic English waiter. I was the equivalent of Manuel um, from Fawlty Towers. And, um, and it, it was a complete fiasco. But I became super friendly with the family, and in particular the owner. And um, he is, uh, he, he's uh, dead now. Um, so he won't mind me briefly touching on his story, um, which was we became very close friends. And uh, maybe you should choose whether you put this in the podcast or not. This means you're definitely going to put it uh, in, doesn't I it? I won't put anything in you don't want to put in. Um, well, so we became friends. And he revealed that his story had been that he'd left university in a part of Colombia which is quite sort of cowboy called Los Llanos. It's the great flatlands that give way to the Amazon. Um, and he'd left with a degree in chemistry. Throughout the conversation when he was going to say something, like for example when he mentions uh, the chemist, mate, um, I'm like, no. No. <laughs> no, it can't be. And then he drops and I'm like, oh, good God. You oh. are the coolest man I've ever met. You're, you're probably... You're probably not going to include this, but I was like, of course we're going to include it! <laughs> it's all fucking gold, Crispin! We're including it all, pal! The idea after I... So I did that, finished uni, uh, then fell into a, to, uh, into a career of TV presenting. Yeah. I was being a waiter at a party, and uh, this woman... It's back in London. No, it was back in London at this okay. point. I'd graduated. Um, and this woman started talking to me and she said, you know, she's kind of along the gist of what do you want to do if you grow up? Um, and I, I'd gone, oh, I really want to be, I want to take up acting, but I'm also really into DJing. And she said, oh, interesting. She sort of sidled away. And then I got a, a phone call and um, she went, I'm, I'm actually a producer at the BBC. And I can't help you with acting because we're in documentary, but I produced this music show called The Ozone, 
will you come in and do a screen test? And the screen test was interviewing one of their presenters. And it was Toby Anstis, I don't know if you remember him, but he was very daytime TV. Uh, I think he'd been a presenter on Blue Peter. And I came out of the interview and she came out laughing, going, well, you're a bit too offensive to be one of the frontline presenters. But if you had your own slot that you presented and produced each week about aspects of, the, uh, of electronic music that you're into, what would you do? And I gave her some ideas. And so from there, I was presenting and producing this little slot on, on the ozone. And, and then from there, I got poached by MTV. And then when I became obsessed with Alan Partridge, which I really did, um, and actually started slipping Alan Partridge-isms no. into real-life interviews, <laughs> the actual one, the, 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 the number one occasion of this was when I got to interview Michael Schumacher. And it was, uh, we, he was driving a Ferrari Testarossa. Testarossa, Testarossa, I don't know what's that. I was in the passenger seat and we were mic'd up, but then there was a, 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 like a, a, a camera van in front filming us. And there's this bit in Alan Partridge, the first radio show, where he interviews France's second best racing driver, Michel Lombard. And he goes, now, Michel Lombard, You've been interviewed by people all over the world. Do you get bored of being asked the same old questions? Oh, exactly, Alan. It's terrible when the researcher doesn't do the research. Exactly. When did you first decide to become a racing driver? Uh, <laughs> uh, and to me, it was just the greatest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And what better moment to ask Michael Schumacher now, Michael Schumacher, you've been interviewed by people all over the world. Do you get bored of being asked the same old questions? And it was as though he was in on the joke. And he went, yes, it's terrible when the researcher doesn't do the research. You are a celebrity. You're France's second best racing driver. You get interviewed all the time. Do you get bored of the same old questions? Yes, that's very true. There's nothing worse than uh, an interviewer who cannot be bothered to find uh, an interesting angle. Yeah, I can imagine. When did you first want to be a racing driver? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. yes. Yes, exactly when. And basically, that, that was the beginning of the end of my TV career. <laughs> then I had this idea, which was, um, when I'd been in Colombia, I'd stumbled across the man who I had lived with, him and his family. He said, if you go to Medellin, you should call up this person. So I went to Medellin, and this is a young guy, and he took, me, he took me to this club and showed this scene of thrash metal. Uh, Medellin's a really quite white city. Um, like tangos, Argentinian tangos are huge there and um, a, a lot of the rest of Colombia, in particular, in particular Cali, is very Caribbean. Um, and there was this scene of thrash metal bands in uh, uh, Medellin, but many of the members of the bands were sicarios or hired assassins. And, and I 
found this really interesting and, and because I was really into music, they, they, you know, there was that common language. So I got to talk to quite a few of them. And at the same time, I was really interested in the whole mechanic of the mother being the focus of Latin American society. And there was a common thread with all these cicadas that they, they, were, ver they, they, uh, they were very worshipful of the Virgin Mary. That was the center of their religion. And then when they spoke about the mother, that was the, the, the focus of their world. So it was, I, I kind of had this idea to do this film about these thrash metal bands with the, uh, the sicarios as the central theme, illustrating the mother and machismo in Latin society. So after TV, I thought I'm gonna go back to Colombia and write this film script. But Colombia in now 96 was really quite heavy. 97 maybe it was. And I thought I'll just go somewhere where it's a bit safer and get my Spanish up to where it should be, uh, which is where Mexico appeared. And Mexico was, uh, I thought I'll go there for three months. I went to Mexico and um, who should I bump into but my old friend from uni, Sam Hart. Sam, uh, who is uh, one of my two partners at Hearts Group now, along with his brother James, uh, Sam was uh, working in Mexico City. Um, and he was working in finances um, and was having a miserable time. Uh, he just wasn't feeling it, but he was feeling Mexico City and had made some really good friends. And, we hung out for about three months and then had the idea that it would be a really good idea to open a nightclub. Um, it, was, it was a pretty left field idea. 20, uh, 25, I think, 24 or 25. Maybe, actually, no, maybe, no, I'm, I'm lying. 26. This bit blew my mind as well when he when they started the club in Mexico. <laughs> he's 24 years old. No, or 26. Uh, 26. Was, 26. Like, 26. I was like, ah, oh, cool. I'm just turned 26. For <laughs> God's sake. I know. So we find this amazing venue and we open up this nightclub together. And that How was. How the fuck does that happen? I don't know. How on earth do you manage that? Like, also, your Spanish isn't very good. No. You're in a new city, basically. Yes. The was, Mex Sam's, was Sam's Spanish good? Was he kind of like feet under the table with Mexico? Or no, no, we were definitely on a par with our Spanish. Right, okay. um, and uh, we found the Mexicans to be incredibly welcoming and encouraging, and you can reinvent yourself every morning there. Um, so, you know, that we had no experience doing nightclubs was, was not so much of an issue. You know, also there was, there was in 96, 7, there was really good stuff, or there was, you know, there was sort of seismic stuff happening in England. You know, Blair had just got into power. Everyone felt really good about that. It was right in the middle of cool Britannia. It was Oasis and Blur, and it was, it was kicking off. It was really, it was really happening, and then, uh... Do you think that helped you in terms of what you were doing then? Absolutely. You thinking, these lines are from where it's booting off. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, and, and I also did um, 
uh, a radio show about what was going on in Britain and, um, you know, it opened up lots of avenues to play records at parties and uh, we ended up sort of getting a bit of a name for ourselves, you know, and yeah, it was that, that, was, that was a massive help. And also the Mexicans were a massive help. They were really up for it and they didn't try and impede this ridiculous idea. We found this kind of 19th century two-story house uh, that had, had the back of it had been sort of hollowed out so it could fit about three or 400 people. We had two floors um, and one was electronic um, uh, and upstairs was much more eclectic. But we sort of had kind of quite nice rules, that, so we didn't really let people take photos in there. It, it was not a swingers club. Um, uh, if that was what I, I'm sure I saw the cogs were. One night, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Kiefer Sutherland, who was filming with Courtney Love. They were filming Beat. Uh, which was all about uh, the beatniks um, and uh, he was really pissed and what people don't know about Kiefer Sutherland is when he gets pissed he puts on a he, he's got a very broad Glaswegian accent and he goes this place is fucking brilliant no that's Northern Irish isn't it yeah <laughs> definitely Belfast coming out can you can you do I can't do uh, Glasgow brilliant you're brilliant. Brilliant. It's more that like rolling of the R, I think. Anyway, it? you'll have to translate. But he, he, he went, this place is brilliant. I'll do anything for you. And I said, OK, I've got a brilliant idea. I go, I'll go, this is in the upstairs. I'll go and play an old American rock and roll song. You take off all of your clothes. And he goes, brilliant. <laughs> so he stripped down to his pissy Y fronts whilst I played Sweet Home Alabama. Bizarre. It's very bizarre. I felt throughout Crispin was brushing off how I mean I think I mean just brushing off how fucking cool those stories are. Yeah, he's very modest. Ve like hyper modest. Like again, the whole falling into it thing. Oh, this happened. This happened. This happened. But it's like they're not regular things. But also, that's just his life. Yeah, exactly. I know. And I, I guess if, the, if that's all you've got to reference, it's just it's happened. That's, yeah. It is what it is, right? It, it was definitely bizarre in the best way. And what one thing that it did is it made me really miss London and England. You know, a lot of people in London are really over being in London. And, and I had to leave it to realise how much I liked it. Yeah, fair. Um, so... How long did you do that? How long did you do the play? Nine or ten years. Cochinita tostada, yeah. uh, agua chile, uh -huh. no, actually a classic ceviche, al pastor tacos, and some uh, papas, yeah. and uh, that'll do. Brilliant. And then? 
That, that's it. Aquí se hace unos refritos. Y salsas, por favor. Uh, árbol, verde, morita. Porfa. For goodness sake. I thought he must, must have hit his cool quota. And then he orders his tacos in Spanish. Absolutely sick. Sam, at this point, has got... Uh, he's got Fino. Um, and uh, that's doing really well. Uh, it's at the bottom of Charlotte Street. Um, he, in 2008, opens uh, Quo Vardis. Um, How did he get from nightclub in Mexico City to, to that? He'd gone to Barcelona. The plan was that we would meet up in Barcelona and open up a nightclub. But I stayed in Mexico. Uh, and then he uh, found really amazing food in Barcelona and decided that he was going to do that in London, which is how he did Fino. Uh, but him and I always stayed in touch um, and um, we remained very close and uh, really into food. And every time someone would open a Mexican restaurant, um, we would go there, eat and lament that, about the fact that even if it was calling itself authentic Mexican food, it still wasn't really what we'd eaten. Uh, and I throughout stayed in the, the music industry. Uh, I ran a record label for Lily Allen, um, which was really good fun. Now he's running a record label for Lily Allen. What is happening? Uh, but Sam and I just always had this dialogue about food and um, eventually in 2016, uh, I had just finished producing this show called Letters Live, uh, which is like a sort of live performance, um, like a reading performance based on this book called Letters of Notes. Really, really good show. Um, and I just finished doing that and was at a loose end and James Heart had just come on board and he was like, come on guys, really got to stop talking about this. Uh, uh, friends still in Mexico, a lot of them had been always going, you've got, to, you've got to open in London, you know, your obsession with our culture is brilliant, just open it up in London. Um, and that went, you know, it, it was, um, we got a lot of help and know-how and were able to, to start at basics. And the whole tortilla thing was super important to us. And to Mexico, you know, it's like, it's the, that was our starting point of, we've got to do a decent tortilla and then maintain the standard with all the other ingredients. But it has to start with that sort of truth of the tortilla production. Is it hard to find people to do Yeah, it was a nightmare. And we had really basic equipment. Uh, and for no fault of the kitchens, it was down to bad machine getting. Through no fault of theirs, it was a nightmare. Yeah, so it was very much around getting an authentic Mexican offer on the table. Um, uh, and, you know, really leveraging everything I had in Mexico to, 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 to get us hooked up. There are so many aspects that we were really excited about transmitting about contemporary Mexico, which 
we felt had not really been sort of spoken about or addressed, that was all kind of quite chintzy and Day of the Deady. We were really eager to promote what we saw and lived in Mexico. You know, we found it to be the, the graphic language to be very prevalent. Um, we took our graphic designer out there, a guy called Jules Roberts, who's amazing. Um, we took our architects out there. Um, uh, James was there, um, obviously. Uh, Alex Michaelis, um, uh, who did the architecture on Stony Street. And we really focus on picking up archive, on really digging deep into what Mexico had to offer. We wanted to reflect the food that we experienced. It happened to be, to mean that we therefore had to create as authentic an offering as possible. And I think that there's a lot of opinions and everyone's right. And, uh, you know, so the, so the negative feedback we get is that the portions are too small. Um, uh, and that it's expensive. My position on that is that what existed in the UK before is what informed people's opinions about, um, uh, about what Mexican food is. My, I, I think that it was Tex-Mex food that existed before um, Mexican food. Um, and even when Mexican street food started making it into the UK. It, it was still quite anglicized with lots of carbs and cheese. You know, Mexico, Mexico food is very much about proteins. Um, the tortilla is a vehicle to get the proteins in your mouth as fast as possible whilst holding um, uh, some salsas. It's very, it's quite reductionist food. It's not very elaborate. Um, but of course, the, 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 the disparity to doing really good quality proteins on a taco versus large amounts of carbs, is a, it's a totally different pricing structure. Um, and we really want to do, you know, we want to source our stuff properly and we want to serve quite generous portions, um, you know, like those tostadas, that they're overloaded. Exactly, it's a lot of meals. Yeah, um, uh, but those are, those are the sort of portion, those are the sizes of the tacos you get in Mexico City, um, and that's the kind of composition. Being of able them. to see that journey of something, mm. like that dish, like Crispin had ordered the food for us, and like the food had come, and then he was like, oh, this, this dish here, and I was like, it's potato dish with like salsa over it and, and some like mango and whatever. And he was like, oh, I've got inspiration from this from this thing. By the way, this is a mad dish. I'll tell you a little bit about it. Um, so there's this town called Zamora in the state of Michoacan in central Mexico. Last year, uh, I went to visit this great cook, Diana Kennedy, um, uh, who's like the don of 
Mexican cooking. Okay. And um, I then drove around Michoacan to understand the culture of carnitas, which is a dish we do here. And this town, Zamora, which is really not, it, that, it's not particularly on the beaten track for tourism stopped at this street stand and there was this guy with these potatoes and he'd chop up mango and jicama and add the salsa verde and suddenly you had this dish and they serve it in a plastic bag and i was just like this is absolutely insane yeah. i wonder if there's a video of it that's it that's it in the bag they're, they're, they're the potatoes oh there's the thing and i've actually got a film of him prepping it and he was like, I was like, look, I'd really like Dude, to, that's so cool, man. I'd like to that. do, here we go. And he whipped his phone out and was like, oh, maybe I can find it. And boom, there it is. Like, honestly, the thing on the fucking screen looked identical to the thing on the table. And there was this dude, like, just peeling his mango. Look at the knife work, it's so gorgeous as well. And he's talking about how he makes it, how his dad used to do it. That's his son. I mean, on this, you know, his dad used to be on this street corner. And this is why we look at him just destroy this mango. What it becomes is that constant question of how can we transmit what we fell in love with to an audience who come with their own preconceptions? How can we make that dance happen? Um, because and, and on that basis, it always becomes a, that's a kind of, that's a very different proposition to walking into a, um, a, a, a taco stand in Mexico and just cutting loose and discovering new food. So there is that business related question constantly ticking over. But you know, I, I really enjoy it. All of us, like Sam, James and I, we, we do share a, a, um, a bond of really deriving a lot of satisfaction from someone having an enjoyable experience at our, at, you know, within our remit. Wow. Well, that was, that was excellent for a podcast. I'm speechless. Thank you very much to Crispin for sitting down with me and having a beer. I feel like I maybe never want to actually meet him. Yeah. Because... How he felt with Bowie, maybe you feel with him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with you. Taylor thoroughly enjoyed listening to the interview. Oh, now it's going to be weird if I do meet him nah. and he's going to I'm hey. like a fanboy. <laughs> yeah, fair. Thank you for listening to Set Meals. Uh, check us out on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, for visual delights that will accompany this episode. And yeah, check out El Pastor at tacos underscore El underscore Pastor on Instagram. Uh, we will be back next week for more food-related chat. See you next week. I forgot my wallet.